0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Maria Semple, author of New York Times best-selling novel, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Semple grew up in Aspen and after college at Barnard, moved to Los Angeles where she wrote for television shows. Her credits include Ellen, Mad About You, and Arrested Development. Where Do You Go with Bernadette is an epistolary novel. It's all told in letters and emails from the voices of several characters. The novel's focus is the main character, Bernadette Fox, who is wife of Elgie and mother to Bee. The story's premise is that Bernadette disappears just before a family trip to Antarctica, and her daughter B gains access to all the documents in order to figure out where her mother might be. We began the interview talking about how Maria Semple came to be a storyteller.
1: I think that the desire to tell stories comes from a desire to escape. I feel like as a child I was always wanting to be alone and make up stories. And it, it was it was a way of just kind of this play acting, you know, and creating another world around me, you know. Um I think about growing up and always actually wanting to be alone, really, and and when I was alone, I would come up with imaginary friends and conversation and dialogue and very elaborate, kind of almost parallel lives that I had, and so it wasn't necessarily a, a function of growing up around a dinner table and learning the gift of the gab, you know, which which I think I do have and I think that my father had. I think that wanting to tell stories comes from a much kind of darker place. Um, and I, I think it's it started with me and it starts with most people very young with this intense fantasy life. You know, growing up in Aspen, it's funny because I always um, remember that even – at a very young age, I would always want to be single on the chairlift. You know, I would always wait for everyone to pair up so I could be alone on the chairlift. And I would then kind of get into a a fantasy world, you know, which which I enjoyed a lot more than skiing. Let's <laughs> tell you the truth. But at least uh, it had that going for it. I could always go up in the chairlift and, and imagine things.
0: You were an English major in college. How did you go from that to writing for TV?
1: My father um, was a very uh, well-known and successful screenwriter. And so I grew up in a house of uh, a movie house, you know, uh, a show business uh, upbringing in Los Angeles. And then we moved to Aspen, Colorado, you know, obviously. And so um, we grew up around a lot of writers, a lot of just movie people. And so that, uh, in the summer, we would go... Visited my father on location, you know, in Los Angeles, or one summer in Bora Bora, where he was shooting a movie, Hurricane. And so that became very much part of the fabric of my life, was the movie business. And it was almost kind of a lack of imagination, um, coupled with wanting my father's love, you know, that made me want to become a screenwriter. And and it really was was from a very primitive and kind of sad desire to get him to love me and pay attention to me, you know, and so I wanted to do what he did. And so I did that, and um, and from college, you know, it was interesting that, that as much as I loved reading books, and as much as to this day, it's been the one thing that's really sustained me my whole life is reading, and it's the thing that I get the most intense pleasure from. Um, it didn't occur to me until maybe 10 years ago to write a novel. It, it felt like something that other people did. Uh, it felt like something that a higher order of person did, you know. Um, I actually think that that was largely uh, largely influenced by my father's friendship with James Salter, who we grew up with, uh, you know, Jim down the street, you know, in the West End in Aspen and went to school with his kids, and our families were very close, and there was always this kind of aura around Jim, where he was just very special, and the way people treated him, and that he was friends with Saul Bellow, or John Irving would be over at his house for dinner or something, and so as a child, I, I think that that, com- that really had a big impact on me in, in making me think that it was something that I couldn't do, That that not even that I couldn't do, but it wouldn't even occur to me to do it because it felt so holy. So I, I, screenwriting felt like something I could do somehow, you know, and, and it took me a long time to kind of to, to have all that stuff untangled because I actually think I'm a better novelist than I am a screenwriter and I think that I'm a much an, an natural novelist, but it took me a really long time to get there.
0: So tell me about where do you go, Bernadette? And obviously you moved from L.A. to Seattle. What were you thinking about when you chose this topic to write about?
1: I was really in a terrible, toxic place where I was thinking about um, how much I hated Seattle and how sorry I was feeling really sorry for myself Um, because my first novel, This One Is Mine, had come out and had not sold very well. And it was really devastating. I felt very publicly humiliated by it. Believe me, no one was paying attention, you know, but it felt very public and very awful to me. And that was my experience of it. And I just moved to Seattle. And instead of taking responsibility for myself, I just thought I'll never write again. I'll show everyone I'm just going to never write and just throw my life away. I'll show them you know it's totally irrational but that's what happens when you're full of self pity and toxic and, and not taking responsibility you kind of come up with very strange uh concepts you know and so i was very much living there and thinking that and um and then a friend of mine in in LA he was a a former psychiatrist now friend when i was bitching about you know how awful seattle was and i'll never write again he said to me, Maria, you're a writer. Writers must write. If you do not write, you will become a menace to society. And that's a line from the book. As as you know, the whole book kind of turns on that line. And when, or in, in the book, it's artists must create art, you know, and if, if Bernadette, if you don't, you'll be a menace to society. And that was the, the spark that made me think, okay, there's my book. It's me if I don't write. What? would my life be. And so that that was was what started the book and that's what everything is built on that
2: one line in the book. The publishing industry is a system.
0: Books are mirrors into people's experiences.
2: And in season 2 of Missing Pages We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of The Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial.
1: She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic
0: fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or Fired.
2: We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Maria Semple, author of New York Times bestselling novel, Where Do You Go, Bernadette? So the premise of the novel is that Bernadette Fox has disappeared and her daughter B is trying to find her. And in her search for her mother, she pieces together all these documents, emails, faxes, letters, fundraising letters from her private school, so it's told in different voices and sort of in an interesting order. It's not from beginning to end necessarily. So how did you structure this?
1: That was the easiest part for me. And it I almost gave it no thought. Once I, I realized it should be an epistolary novel, and that was after a lot of attempts at first person, at third person, and um, it took me a while to get there. Uh, but once I understood it was an epistolary novel, it it was almost like freakishly easy for me to do it. I, I I think maybe people would picture a huge wall filled with note cards and timelines and things, and and I always had a document that was the timeline. Um, no, no, you know what I had is I had a document that was the that I always write, which is a major timeline of my. Characters like what year they're born and how old they are at any given time, you know, just to make sure if they're they're going to college, you know, within you know in the right year, and I'm not putting them in college ten years off the mark, you know, things like that. And I always write that for myself, just a little kind of bio. But then, the book takes place over really, let's call it between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so, what I did was I just printed out on my computer just the the calendar program. I would print out. November and December and then I would write in um in pencil the things that happened every day you know uh like literally the events of every single day and then I would it, it, you know just little notations it, it wasn't very elaborate cuz the squares are very small I couldn't really fit that much in them but so I would just kind of do a little bullet points you know of this is when the mudslide is this is when B gets accepted to choke. This is when LG goes out to Orcas Island to see the shrink. And then you also have to account for the time that letters take to get to each other. You know, and for instance, like if, if something happened at school on Friday, you'd have to think that it wouldn't get brought home by the kids in their folder, which is what I called it, until Monday. I would have to then just make sure that that things were traveling at the right speed you know and so th- that really informed a lot of the actions of the book is how long it would take potentially a letter to get somewhere you know because then you'd have to back things up on the calendar a couple days to account for for that um but but that was fun i mean that's the easy part that's just like doing the jumble in the morning you know i mean that i for me at least that that i there was never any sense of like, oh, it's not gonna work out that was truly the fun part.
0: What was the hard part?
1: The hard part was was writing letters in the in voices that I didn't think I could do that that was really the hard part um was there were two or three things that I just thought I couldn't do and and the thing is 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 that once I Um, decided to make this an epistolary novel, I really thought I want this to be the best version of an epistolary novel ever written. You know, I want to really push this as hard as I can, because I think epistolary novels get a bad name, or, or if they don't, they should get a bad name from all of this junk out there that's a lot of really junky epistolary novels that's just People writing letters in the same voice. And I don't even know why it's an epistolary novel. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Like, why don't they just do alternating first-person characters or something? You know, like, it doesn't use the form properly. And there's a few that really do use the form properly that, that are really inspiring, you know? And, and to me, one of them is L'Elia d'Angereuse, which is a 18th century novel, a French novel by a guy named Laclos that's absolutely, to me, the most brilliant version of of the form, and there's another one called English Passengers by Matthew Neal that's maybe about fifteen years old that's also really brilliant, and he really pushes it I mean in that he writes this stuff in such different voices um and 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 if, uh, they're they're so distinct, and there's so many of them that I just thought if if I'm going to to do what I want to do it right, you know you don't want to just have the same voice throughout. And, and you want the letters to become real objects, which is what happens in Le Liaisons Dangereuses. is these letters start becoming stolen and glimpsed at and not delivered. And, you know, and it just becomes this whole other wonderful dimension of the the novel. And I wanted to aid do that, to have stuff pass through the wrong hands, you know. And I also wanted to write it, I wanted to kind of combine the best of those two books.
0: In addition to Seattle, the other major setting in your book is Antarctica. What brought you to creatively that you decided it you wanted it to be Antarctica?
1: Well, it was only cuz we were planning a trip there in 3 months. I mean that I knew we were going there and because I love I love traveling. I'm a big traveler and in fact that's where almost kind of my na- naivete works to my advantage. It just I I had heard it was a great place to go. So we thought, oh, let's go to Antarctica. So we signed up for it in February or something, and I started writing the book in the fall, and we were going to Antarctica. As as the fall started, as I was working on the book and as the the, um, fall um, unfolded, People would say, what are you doing for Christmas? And I'd say, we're going to Antarctica. And everyone looked at me like I was crazy, like they thought that was the most insane place to go. Why would you go to Antarctica? And it never, honestly, I was just thinking, why wouldn't you want to go to Antarctica? You know, who doesn't want to go to Antarctica? I don't know what it's going to be like. It sounds cool. And so I got so much kind of such an odd kind of supercharged reaction that I thought, wow, I should have my family go to Antarctica because apparently it it makes people kind of not like you. You know, if you tell them you're going to Antarctica, you know, they think you're like stuck up or something or they're like, I don't know what. I still don't really know. But, But anyway, I was getting such weird energy about it that I thought, oh, this is right what I'm writing about. This is exactly like what the book is. And so I thought. I didn't know that they would necessarily end up in Antarctica, but I was, because I was just writing the beginning of the book then, and I didn't know how the book would end, but I thought, oh, this is just an interesting kind of inciting event, you know, that, that, because what happened was that the more I started writing about Bernadette, writing her and seeing how, uh, how, unhappy she was to be around people and all the social anxiety, which is really my diagnosis of her is social anxiety, that she wouldn't want to go to Antarctica because you are trapped on a boat with all these people you have to sit and have dinner with and everything. And so I thought she wouldn't want to do that. But then what if the daughter does and she does it for the daughter? You know, so you just kind of figure they just kind of occur to you when you're going on a walk or in the shower or something. And then that felt like a really good, interesting beginning, you know, of the girl who the mother adores, you know, who wants to go to Antarctica, and and Bernadette, in the beginning of the book, thinking, like, I don't have it in me, but I'm going to try for my daughter. And and that's always a really good um, position to have your protagonist in, right, is trying something that – trying to do something that they can't do, you know. And even if it's something as as weird as, like, going on a – getting on a ship and being with people on a ship, you know, that that seemed – real like a rich area and it seemed original and and so i thought okay that's a good a good way for it to start because in kind of co- i mean this is all screenwriting stuff but you know things are humming along for the character until something happens you know and that's the coping mechanisms are working you know and then and then the story begins you know you 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 pick up a story at the point that the coping mechanisms don't work anymore you know and so that's kind of how i saw it and this seemed like a perfect Way of, of Bernadette's world really was kind of working for her up until this point. You know, she was not really dealing with anyone, staying inside, and now this thing from the outside is thrust upon her and she has to make a decision about what to do. So that's in very classic story telling, you know, story structure, how my book starts.
0: Can you read a brief passage from another author that influenced you as a writer?
1: I am so in love with this woman named Barbara Tropedo, who is very little known in the United States. She's alive, living um, in London, and has written seven novels that are my seven favorite novels. And her first book called Brother of the More Famous Jack, I, I, I read her between my, my, the first book I read of hers was before I wrote my first and second novel. And the, the people who love this book, Brother of the More Famous Jack, um, are so fanatic about it. And in fact, I, one of the things I'm most proud of is I um, can say that I'm personally responsible for it coming back into print this October. I just finished writing the introduction to it. And um, and all these super torpedo fans are coming out of the woodwork, like Elizabeth Gilbert just wrote this amazing thing about this book that's going to be um, part of the reissue of it. And people... Have discovered her and love her, and and I think the beach, I think that this really um, this book really informed Bernadette because it was it's so it's it's so chaotic and it's so um, deeply felt and it's so original that I felt like I I had a new the the bar had just been raised for me by Barbara Trepito and. And um, several, I've written about this book a lot and given a lot of interviews about this book, Brother and the More Famous Jack. And to me, the, the greatest compliment I can have about my writing is when people say they see the DNA of, of that in my book. You know, because if, if I'm doing anything like echoing it, just a small a bit of the energy, you know, of that Torpedo has into my book, then, then I'll feel very grateful. I'm going to read a passage that is about a woman, uh, and it, 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 it's English, so there's going to be some English things, but it's, about, it's after this woman has gotten um, dumped. Uh, she's a very smart girl who's insecure and very stylish, and she's just been dumped by this son of an intellectual um, who's really kind of above her station in life. Exercising his own guilt, no doubt, and uneasiness, he made me a careful, articulate pyramid of my shortcomings, which was anything but kind. It said in short that, weighed in the balance, I showed up trivial, that I covered my notebooks in Florentine wrapping paper like a girl guide on a nature trail, that I cared more for knitting than logic, that I made a brazen virtue of all that was unfortunate, vulgar, and semi-educated in my own history. That, frankly, my mother's plastic ducts left him feeling ill. That I fondled my earrings while he, Roger Goldman, played the violin. That I laughed too much. That in the very science museum I had, that very day, spent the bulk of my time admiring the stencil designs on the iron vaults. As if, he said, as if the place were housing an annual craft exhibition run by the Women's Institute. I think that before he turned and walked away from me, I said that I was sorry. In this life, there are those that apologize and those that do not. I am a person who says sorry if a passerby stands on my foot. I thought first, crazily, that I had to tell him that my mother's ducks were china and not plaster, that my mother, whose chocolate cake he had not disdained, was my property to criticize, not his. Then, I'm, see, I'm crying as I read this. Then, as the tears spilled in silence down my face, I thought that I would do anything, anything to get him back, that I would do algebra and sackcloth for the privilege of touching the hem of his hand-on ski-shout jumper. I was no good at rage and indignation. It had never been encouraged in my house. I'll stop there. But it's just, to me, a beautiful coming-of-age story about a girl who kind of, abases herself. And uh, I just think it's so beautifully written and so touching.
0: Can you read a passage from something you wrote? It could be something that you found hard to write or something that changed from the first draft or just something you feel you succeeded at.
1: So in my book, one of the big moves, and it's almost the most incredible thing that happens in the book, is that the husband tries to commit Bernadette, right? That there's, that, that, um, and that was one of the things that my agent, uh, you know, was saying nobody would ever do this. No one likes him for this. Like, you, the book just totally falls apart at this point when, when he doesn't have enough to go on, you know, and, and it makes you really hate him and he seems truly evil and it seems cartoonish and like no one would ever do it. And, And at that point, that was not a beat that I was going to take out because I'd written the book, you know, I'd written seven drafts of the book and you can't, you know, then you wouldn't have the interview, you know, there's so much that you wouldn't have, like the whole thing really would fall apart if you started pulling at that thread. And so I, it was, so I worked on this, you know, as in because it's an epistolary novel, it was in a letter. I worked on this letter at great length of LG, what he, because I, I don't, I, I don't want him to be there twirling his mustache trying to commit his wife to a mental institution, you know? I want I wanted him to seem like he cared about her and didn't really understand what he was asking, you know? And so it was a very hard thing to, it was like threading the needle, you know? On the one hand, making it explicit that, that he's asked this, this person uh, about committing his wife, but on the other hand, making him not a bad guy for doing it, which is very... Uh, difficult, uh, high degree of difficulty. So, um, uh, so here's here's two the last two paragraphs of what I fiddled with forever and ever. Um, and this is uh, LG writing to Dr. Kurtz. Dr. Kurtz, I don't pretend to understand what's wrong with Bernadette. Is she depressed, manic, hooked on pills, paranoid? I don't know what constitutes a mental breakdown. Whatever you want to call it, I think it's fair to say my wife is in need of serious attention. Bernadette, B and I are scheduled to go to Antarctica in two weeks. Bernadette obviously does not want to go. I now think it might be a better idea if B and I go to Antarctica, just the two of us, while Bernadette checks into Madrona Hill. I can't imagine Bernadette will be too keen on the idea, but it's clear to me she needs some supervised R&R. I am anxious to hear your thoughts. So that was like a little section that I um, struggled with.
0: And are you happy with the result? Yes,
1: I'm actually very happy with it because now that I'm reading it, I'm very happy with it. I'm like, wow, I really did that right. I mean, I think that it shows that he doesn't really know what he's doing. Oh, he doesn't know what's wrong with her. Of course, there was a lot before in the letter where he thinks she, you know, he's found a lot of pills and, you know, and he's learned some things about her recently that, that make him, makes him not really feel like he doesn't know his wife anymore. And um, And then to say... You know, and and also that Bernadette doesn't want to go, because that's all she's been saying, you know, that she doesn't want to go, she doesn't want to go. So that's fair. You know, he's saying, look, she doesn't even want to go, and so maybe it would work out better if if I go with my daughter and she gets some help. You know, which actually does seem pretty reasonable uh, on the one hand, you know what I mean? But but then there's that line of him saying, I can't imagine Bernadette will be too keen on the idea, which really does say, come with a butterfly net and, and take her away, you know? So it's like, it's kind of a gray area, which I like. You know, I, I, I personally think it works as a gray area now.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Maria Semple, author of New York Times best-selling novel, Where Do You Go, Bernadette? Where do you write?
1: I write down the hall uh from my apartment. Uh we have a little studio apartment that is my version of Bernadette's um airstream. That's down the hall that's a little um uh it's decorated almost like an IKEA showroom and has very little personality and it very uh, few signifiers that I live there which I like cuz I have an office that really is uh in my apartment that really looks like a madwoman's brain exploded on the walls. It's just filled with a lot of crazy, weird stuff and pictures and little trinkets and and, um, mementos. And I find that it's hard for me to write when I'm so reminded of who I am. So I like to go to this Ikea showroom of an office and just sit there in a very neutral territory. And that makes it easier for me to write.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I don't. I don't even understand what that question is because I'm always writing. I mean, I feel like that's one of the prizes, you know, you get for being a writer. Is you get to go around and think about words and how you would word things and, oh, I could put that in a book. And, you know, I mean, I, I never want to get away from writing because i and I, and I couldn't, it's just how my mind works. I hear a phrase and I like it. You have lunch with someone and they say something funny and you want to put it in a book, or you go on a walk and you see something that's beautiful, and you think of, of a way to describe it, and you think, oh, good, I can, I want to write that. You know, that, that to me is being alive, and I love it. I would never want to get away from it.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have a group of friends. There are about three or four of them. None of them are writers. They're all um, readers, and that's what I always want to do. I never want to get a writer's opinion on anything. I I have some friends who are big fiction readers, you know, just read the best-selling books and, and, and they you know, very smart. They have very good taste. And so I give them my um, book to read because all I really want to know is if things make sense.
0: And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: Not very well. I mean... I wrote Bernadette out of rejection, so that's pretty good. Um, But uh, rejection sucks, you know, and it's painful and it feels really awful in your body. And, you know, I do is I like go to Jennifer Aniston movies. You know, I just find awful movies and go and have popcorn and Diet Coke during the day and sit there. And, you know, I think time is the only thing that helps and you've just got to get through it. You know, and, and it's mainly just kind of killing the time and feeling the pain and and, uh, and getting to the end of it, you know. And, and I wish I had a better way of dealing with it, but it's really awful. It makes you feel sick. It makes you feel sick and crazy, you know, and you go out of your mind. At least I do, you know. Um, it, it's just a horrible state of mind to be in, but eventually it, it goes away. and uh, And you just have to at least have faith, if you can, that time will will heal it.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Oh, so my favorite word. Well, I, the thing that that jumped out when I saw that question was uh, badger, and and then I thought I also like swan, and I also like shark. But using um, all those as verbs, I think I really like um, using animal names as verbs. <laughs> For some reason, I'm. I think my books are full of that.
0: Like cougar. Pardon like cougar oh
1: yeah but cougar but can you cougar is that a verb like to use them as a verb like that's what i like i like to badger someone or she swanned in the room you know or um
0: you could go cougaring in the bars and yeah exactly
1: to cougar exactly like that's exactly okay so like the shark A shark i saw martin amos once see this is an example of how i'm influenced he used that in um i don't know one of his books i can't remember but the 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 car shark through the tr- traffic or something, and I like that. So, yeah, to cougar, that's right. So, I, for some reason, I always I always like that. I, that always gets me excited when I see, um, or like, um, uh, God, now that I, in fact, I think it was Lori Moore who said, uh, looked at something wolfishly or something. That's not really a verb, but, you know, a wolfish something. I, I do like invoking animals in, in odd ways.
0: That was novelist Maria Semple. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.